0: Well, please, if you would, open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, if you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16, as we really look at the, the core, the last three verses particularly particular of this chapter, the core of what Paul wanted Timothy to know about his commission as a pastor, as an elder of the church at Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above approach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the same condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Please be seated. Now John MacArthur tells the story of an old church in England that had a sign in front of the building, and the sign read, We Preach Christ Crucified. After time, ivy grew up and obscured the last word, so it just said, We Preach Christ. The ivy grew some more with inattention of the church, and the motto read, We Preach. And finally, the ivy covered the whole sign and the church died. I have to keep all those things in mind. I don't just preach. I don't just gather. We preach Christ crucified. This is what we do. But if we do not carefully guard this truth, then it can easily fade. And the church, when that happens, will die. When the church fails to preach and live the truth about Christ, the world remains deceived, remains condemned, going to hell apart from the reality of the truth, believed, and lived. Now, Satan is the father of lies, and he's filled the earth with all of his lies so that those in the world will be unable to recognize the truth, and thus they will perish eternally. The most important thing in the universe is the truth. There's only one organization that has the truth and has the ability to understand, live, and proclaim the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. And thus, it is vital that the church, in its visible form, the local church, be established in every part of our country and all around the world. However, not, not just any church will do. It must be a church that understands the Bible to be the only source of inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient truth, and knows how to properly teach and apply that truth in a biblically prescribed manner. That's why we're in the business of planting churches. Lots of organizations that call themselves churches in Knoxville, but there are very few of them that we would consider to be pillars and supports of the truth. That's why we're setting out Gospel Hope to be a pillar and support of the truth. Not to be an extension of Grace Community Church, not to be another part of an organization, but that they would support and uphold the truth and all of its facets, upholding the person and work of Christ because that is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we'll see this morning that the mission of the church is to express its nature as God's household in supporting and upholding the truth by preaching Christ, living Christ, and planting churches for Christ in a world that is deceived by lies. The mission of the church is to express its nature as God's household in supporting and upholding the truth by preaching Christ, living Christ, and planting churches for Christ in a world that is deceived by lies. The church of the living God is the only pillar and support of the truth. Now, we're jumping right into the middle of the book of First Timothy, a pastoral epistle. That is, Paul, an apostle, writing to his, really his apostolic emissary, one sent from an apostle to, to establish a church. And then, often, what those apostolic emissaries would do is they would remain as one of the elders of that church. They would establish elders and then remain to preach and teach and really to bring the truth that the apostles had given, to bring that to the church so that it could be properly established. Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. He's a young pastor, a young elder in Ephesus who's trying to put things in order, and he's doing that in the face of much opposition. Things are the, the, the false teachers in the church are not going quietly, and so Paul is bolstering him up, giving him the truth that he needs to know, and really strengthening him to accomplish the work he's been given. Now, Paul has addressed a variety of issues already in the first pages of 1 Timothy. He's talked about how to deal with false teachers. He's encouraged Timothy not to give up. He's given instructions on prayer, on women's role in the church and on qualifications for elders and for deacons. The proper qualified leadership that a church must have if it's going to be that pillar in support of the truth. Now Paul directly states his reasons for writing the letter. Gets to the, in the middle of the letter, he gets to the highlight. This is why I'm writing. It's what he says. I am writing these things to you for this particular purpose. And so he's going to direct Timothy to remember what the church is. That's why these instructions are being given, as he will say. That's why the urgency. So we're going to look at this briefly this morning. We have a church to send out, so we won't be able to spend a full amount of time that we might. But nonetheless, I think we can walk our way through these things with an encouragement as to what the church is really supposed to be so that we will remember ourselves as Grace Community Church, but also that you, Gospel Hope, will remember. You will be reminded again this morning of what you're doing as you go out. So first, in our text, really verses 14 through 16, we see that proper instruction about the purpose of the church is urgent. It's urgent. Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write. So Paul wanted to come as an apostle. He wanted to come and give his teaching directly. However, it appears that he was not going to be able to get there as soon as he wanted, but he knew that he couldn't leave Timothy without the instructions. Remember that the Bible, the, the fullness of the scriptures, the 66 books, that wasn't finished. It was being written. And so Timothy didn't have all the information that he needed in order to establish a solid church. So Paul says, look, either i got to come to you and tell you, and because I can't come, I'm going to write to you. You have to know these things. See, we have the scriptures, so we're used to being able to just turn and read. Timothy could not pick up the Old Testament and read about how the church was to be established. He needed the New Testament instruction from the apostle Paul and from the apostles as to how to do this. So this was urgent. He says, look, I'm hoping to come to you. This is my passion, I want to come and proclaim these truths, but because I can't. Because in case I'm delayed, you have to know it, so I'm going to write to you. And remember that as Paul wrote, he was writing the inspired words of God. This this epistle that he wrote came into our 66 books, preserved by God as part of the canon, and therefore every word found here is God's word. Every every individual word, plus the sentences, plus the structure, everything is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3 says. So we, we understand that these aren't Paul's words in and of himself. They're not Timothy's words. These are God's words, and that's why we preach them. Because these are the words of God. His inspired words, which are inerrant, fully sufficient, totally authoritative. Right? Absolutely inspired by God himself. So that's why we do this. Because you might be wondering, well, why are we going to come and get instructions about a, you know, to a church 2,000 years ago? I mean, we're the modern church. We have our own problems. We have our own wrestles and issues. And so don't we need to move on. The Spirit of God is going to work in a new way, in a new generation. No, the Spirit of God is going to work in a powerful way through Gospel Hope, through Grace Community Church, but only in the same way that he's been working for 2,000 years. The church is exactly the same. That is, it's made up of sinful people in desperate need of a Savior, and our Savior is exactly the same, the Lord Jesus Christ. His work is not changed, and the Spirit of God testifies to that throughout the generations. That's what we need. We need new gurus telling us how churches are going to be planted and what they're going to do. Gospel Hope does not go out under, well, Craig's got a new idea, new plans, we're going to send him out. And the elders there, Tyler and Jim, they've got the synergy going on. So they can just take you out and lead you in the direction that they think is best. No, we wouldn't send them out if that was the case. We keep you here, we send them out. No, you are going out underneath the principles of the Word of God. And by the way, Paul isn't coming to you, he was coming to Timothy, right? You have the Word of God. The Spirit of God has come to you in the form of the Word of God, but also. Gospel hope as you go out. Right? As Paul was writing to Timothy, a leader of the church, a, a pastor, an elder at the church, you have three elders that you're going out underneath. You have Craig and Tyler and Jim who have been raised up, who have been prepared, who have studied, right? who, who have been, been affirmed by, the, uh, by another church, who have been affirmed by this church so that they are qualified. Right? they have their qualified elder leadership, and that's essential so they can lead and guide you properly. And the reason they're qualified is because they have the characteristics which I've just read, and they're able to take hold of the Word of God and properly teach and live it in front of you and then hold you accountable for doing the same thing. See, we send out three elders from this church because these elders here are not going to be overseeing you. Those elders are, and we know that they will hold you accountable properly to the very instructions that started this church. And that perpetuates all along the way. So there's this urgency to know the instruction. We must know the truth about what the church is to do. But that urgency, of course, is based upon a correct understanding of the purpose of the church. So that's second on your outline, a correct understanding of the purpose of the church. We have to know what the church is doing and who the church is. So Paul says here in the middle of verse 15, he says, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know. Now, that's That's vital. So many times in Scripture, Paul says, the writers of Scripture say, you must know the propositional truths about the person and work of Christ, about the nature of the church, about about the, the second coming of Christ. We first know. You must have the proper information before you can live according to the truth of who God is. You have to know who he is. And these things come to you through the truths of Scripture. It says you must know. You cannot live, you cannot do, until you first know. Everything begins with knowing the truth, then understanding the truth, and then living the truth. And those are always paired together. If you truly know it, then you live it. Look at our text. It says that you will know how one ought to conduct himself, how you live. Now, when it comes to the church, remember, that initial... Paul is initially directing his words towards Timothy himself, how, one, you, Timothy, as the director, as the apostolic emissary to this church, how you ought to conduct yourself. But then that flows out to the elders, as described here, and then to the congregation. This letter would have been read to the congregation as a whole. So the leadership was supposed to hold the church accountable to these things that they, too, understood and sought to do as the church. So this is how we are to conduct. As you know the truths of Scripture, you then live your lives built around that truth. You are formed by the truth. That's what a church is. It's formed by the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you can't separate those things out. Well, I know this, but I don't do this. No, I know the truth, and if it's truly known, then the the truth is lived. There's no separation between... Doctrine and practice. They are integrated to know and to conduct yourselves. So, this conduct includes the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the proper establishment of elders, all the things that a church is to be, as well as the holy living that is to be undertaken by each individual of the church and certainly the leadership of the church as a whole. So, it says, you need to know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the household of God. And Paul doesn't go on to give all that conduct because that's what this, that's what this letter is about. He's telling them how they conduct themselves. He's just reminding you, reminding Timothy, look, this is how you ought to conduct yourself, but here's why. His focus in these verses is why you would conduct yourself in this way. What's the underlying purpose? Because what's the purpose of the church? Well, so we have to properly understand the church's nature that it is God's household. It's not your household. It's not Timothy's household. It's not Paul's household. This is God's household. It is where he lives. It is made up of his family. And as gospel hope goes out, you're not going out as the gospel hope family. You're going out as God's family. You have a name. You're a local church. That's great. But that isn't really your identity. That's why the name of a church is like, you know, sometimes people agonize over that. And it's fine because you want to communicate things through your name. But that's not your identity your identity is not built around the name of your church. It's built around the fact that you are sons and daughters of God. You're God's household. It doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter where you go. North Knoxville, South Knoxville, you know, to the ends of the earth. You are still the same. We are the household of God, which means then that you are God's children. You can't be God's household if you're not his children. You've been adopted into his family. That's how you can represent him. That's why You can be his household. Romans 8.15. We have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We are sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted into his family. We've been united with his son. We carry his spiritual DNA in us. That's who we are. It's why you're different. You don't go out to North Knoxville to pursue your own agendas. You wouldn't be going out there if that was the case. You'd be staying, you know, just hanging around, just doing your own thing. You're going out there so that you might be able to pursue the purposes of one who is part of God's household. This is what we do at Grace. The fact that you aren't going doesn't mean, wow, we're not going to North Knoxville. We get to stay here at Grace and accomplish our own purposes. No, we are here as God's household, entirely different. We don't live in this world. You know, you have your own household, right? Your household is to be pursuing the things of God, but you do that in the church where our entire goal is. Everything we do is different than the world around us. I mean, household just was father, mother, children, and then whatever extended out around that for that family to run. If you were a larger household, you had more financial income, you would have servants and others that lived with you. Anyone that was within the household, right, and it was really defined by the purpose and direction of the father. And they were related together. That was the idea, the primary members of the household. So you go out as those who are sons and daughters of God to accomplish the purposes of your father, Not to accomplish the purposes of your elders. They are to help you accomplish the purpose of your father, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what you do. And that's why you're so different. That's why the world looks at you and says, well, what is this new thing that's happening here in in North Knoxville? It doesn't look like the other things around. It doesn't look like even probably many other churches. And the people that are part of that church don't look the same. You're supposed to blend into culture. You don't start a church that looks like the culture. We're just gonna go with what the cultural milieu is. Whatever's going on in North Knoxville, that's what we'll do. No, whatever God's family is supposed to be doing, that's what you do regardless of where you are. And what you're supposed to be doing doesn't change regardless of where you are. It's always the same. You live for Christ, look like Christ, proclaim Christ, prepare others for the return of Christ. Members of Grace Community Church, Gospel Hope, you need to remember who you are. You're not another group going out to do something in Knoxville or staying here in Maryville. You are part of the household of God himself. You are his sons and daughters. You have as your father the sovereign Lord of the universe. This is the highest possible calling. And this is what you represent. This is how you live. I couldn't emphasize this enough. I mean, how could I give more value to what you are doing than to say what scripture says, you're the household of God. And that's that's why you, you set aside the other stuff. You gotta live in the world, I get that to accomplish things. You need to, you know, make money for your family and enjoy the things of this world. But what you primarily need to do is represent your father. And that sets you apart. You're not going to look like anybody else. You don't live for the same reason. You don't spend your time doing the same things. You are different because you are God's family. Now he goes on to explain even what that is. Well, What's God's household? And for the first time here uh, in this passage, he uses the word church. I've been using it a lot. Here he uses it. The household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You are a church. That is, the word itself, ekklesia, the Greek word, is simply a, a called out group of people that gather together for a particular reason. But in the New Testament, this takes on a very technical nature. A Christian church, a church of God, a church that is the household of God, has these characteristics. It's made up of believers, those who truly know God. They've been transformed by the spirit of God, through the word of God. They've repented and believed. So it's made up of believers gathering together in a location. Certainly the church, there is a church universal, every believer, right? God's bigger family. But each individual local church is to gather as a unique local expression, a unique family, a unique household right? built around the proper foundational principles of what a church is. So believers meeting together in a common place where the word is taught, the ordinances of baptism and communion are administered, the leadership consists of a qualified plurality of elders. The one and others are pursued towards those who are part of that church first, and then church discipline is practiced. That's a church. Basic fundamental issues of what a church actually is. I spent some time doing some additional uh, education in a, uh, through, through a seminary, not my original one, um, which is Master Seminary. But they, they have spent a lot of time debating. I, I did a whole session on ecclesiology, and they were saying, well, a church really is, it practices the ordinances, and it's believers gathered together. That's it. That's well, not what the scripture says as a the church. There's more to it. Right? The idea of leadership is built here into, it's foundational to the church because it's built into the pastoral epistles. This is what the apostolic emissaries were supposed to build so that they would be actually churches. In Titus chapter 1, Titus, another apostolic emissary, sent out by Paul to establish proper churches, he gets kind of parachuted in on the island of Crete, and Paul says, Look, I sent you there for this reason, that you would set in order what remains. Well, Paul, what remains? Are those actual churches in those cities? And the answer is no. They're the beginnings of churches. They're the starts of churches. He says that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. A church is not truly a functioning church until it has a plurality of qualified elders. That's why we're sending out three men. Two would have been enough because that's a plurality, but three is better. So we're sending out three qualified elders who go out to establish, then, a unique entity, a unique household, which reflects the person and work of Christ. It is the household of God. It is the church, then, the gathering together of a body of believers of the living God. It's not the church of Craig Johnson or the church of... Chris Reiser, or the Church of the Elders of Grace, or the Church of the Elders of Gospel Hope. It is the Church of the Living God. Why Living God? Because there aren't any other gods, so you have to be careful to explain. Not some dead God that doesn't exist, not some cult God, not some invention called God by some cult. It is the God of the Bible who is the only God who is actually alive, the eternal, omnipotent, all-knowing God. That's the God we serve. That's who you go out. That's what the church is. You go out representing him. So if you're the church of the living God, what does this mean? It means that you are his church. You belong to him. The leadership is that they're under shepherds. They're stewards of God's household. It's not their household. It is God's household. It is his church. He's the living God. The church proclaims the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. They themselves report about us. What kind of a reception we had with you. So Paul went to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel, and then there was a testimony about what that church looked like. What does a church look like when there are true believers under, under properly qualified elders, practicing the ordinances, church discipline, and the one and others? What does it look like? It says they've turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is what we want to hear about gospel hope as you go out. We don't want to hear about your political views. We don't want to hear about, you know, all the other things that you are doing. We want to hear that you are turning to God from idols, that you are waiting for God who raised Jesus from the dead so that you can be delivered from the wrath to come. Because we've got an election cycle coming. So just get ready for the beginnings of my continual exhortations that you don't get distracted This year is not about that. This year is about you serving the living God, turning to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And that's what everyone around you ought to be saying. They support this policy. They support this stuff. They do this social justice. No. You turn to God from idols. You serve a living and true God because he's the only one that actually is alive, and you wait for Jesus. That's what people ought to be saying. Well, what are you waiting for? Well, I can't wait till my ship comes in for my promotion. Because I understand that you want those things. It's desirous to be able to say, it would be nice to have some children or to have, you know, my family would grow. Those are fine things, but you're not defined by them. As people talk about you, as we hear about gospel hope, what we want to hear, is that there's a group of people waiting for Jesus. They're looking more like Jesus because they're serving the one living God. And this is your proclamation day in and day out. It's how you live. It's why you live. It's why we're sending you. And it is why we need to be the same. Grace Community Church, because we're sending out a church, doesn't mean, well, then we turn and live for our own purposes. Glad we got them out of here. And now now we can do our own thing. And we're doing the same thing they are. We are to live for these purposes alone. And we are not to be known. The names of our leaders are not what matters. The name of our church is not what matters. The name of our living God. And the fact that we are taking on his character. Turning away from the dead gods of this world and serving our living God alone. So we belong to him, we proclaim him, we're made alive by him. He's the living God, so he's the one that animates the church. We're living stones, says 1 Peter 2. We're coming to him as a living stones, rejected by men, choice and precious in the sight of God. We're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We've been given life by God, and therefore we can never die. The church will not die. Oh, maybe gospel hope won't make it. Maybe grace will, maybe grace will you know, crumble to the dust, the church itself. Right? But the church, individual local churches in this world will not die because God is the one who animates them. And he will keep his church, he will keep his people, and it will progress forward. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, says Matthew chapter 16. Well, we need to have a proper understanding of the church's function. So this is the church, the household of God, the church of the living God, and what does it do? It upholds the truth. Two things the church does. It keeps the truth visible, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, the Ephesians and Timothy didn't need any object lesson when Paul says pillar and support of the truth. They look out the window, and there's the temple of Artemis, Right, with a hundred, uh, Temple of Diana, with 127 pillars to support its massive roof, and it dominated the entire city. You want know what a pillar is? It upholds the truth. It makes the truth visible. It keeps the truth supported and in front of a world that desperately needs to see it. We will not change our message. Our message is Christ and him crucified because that's the truth. The truth of the scriptures, everything about the person and work of Christ, Christ predicted, Christ in shadow form in the Old Testament, Christ bursting onto the scene in the Gospels, Christ explained in the epistles, Christ returning again. That's the truth. We will not be distracted. Turn off your talk radio, get rid of your social media if you need to. Stop getting distracted. We have one message about one person, about one body of truth. It's the truth, because there's other truth, as it were, out there. You're sitting in chairs, that's real, right? There are things that happen in the world, that's real. But it's not big T truth. It's only one truth that never fails, one truth that's always true, one truth that is necessary for spiritual life and for godliness, and that's the truth about Jesus. We proclaim that. Stop getting distracted with everything else. It's so easy. Again, we we live in the world. We accomplish things the Lord has given to us, but we never are distracted from this one thing. We keep the truth visible. If we don't, the truth disappears. Satan is trying to destroy the church because the church keeps Jesus front and center. We put it in their faces. Jesus is who you need. Jesus is what is necessary. Jesus Christ, born on this world, lived a perfect life, dying on the cross, rising again, ascending to be with God That is the truth. It's the pillar of the truth. That's what the church is. It guards it. It's secondary or second here. The church keeps the truth guarded. Now support could be, so it's pillar and support. Keeps it visible. Holds it up. Doesn't let the truth fall to the ground. But then also, it guards that truth. It keeps it pure. The idea of support there in the New American Standard, I mean, it could just be a synonym, foundational. I think bulwark in the ESV, we don't even use the word bulwark. It's like Martin Luther writes that word. And songs, But really, the idea of, of a guard, a protection around, to keep, the, found, to keep the, the, the pillars up, to keep the foundation from crumbling. It's like a guard or a protection. And this is a theme of First and Second Timothy. It's why I think the guarding function is mentioned here. And what, that's what uh, support means. Second Timothy 1.13, Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit, the, who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Guard it. How do you guard the truth? By properly understanding it, by properly preaching it, by properly living it, by planting other churches that do the same. That's how you guard the truth. And the church is the only one that can do this. Well, what is the truth then ultimately? Well, that's what Paul Paul gives in verse 16. So he ends this mini exhortation in the middle of the book with a concise understanding of the message. And that is foundational. Here's the message. By common confession. This is the one thing we proclaim. Gospel hope, you go out proclaiming the same thing we proclaim, not a new message for North Knoxville. All right, You proclaim the same message for North Knoxville as for Maryville and Blunt County and everywhere around. The common confession, this is what we say, this is our, the, the testimony we give. Great is the mystery of godliness. I love that. All right, The message you have is the greatest message in the universe. There's no greater message. Again, don't get distracted. Other messages pale in comparison infinitely with this one. And the mystery of godliness, simply that which was not fully known, a mystery in Scripture, but now is fully known in Christ. That's what a mystery is. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, Okay, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, the mystery of Christ, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. And this is the greatest mystery ever. But it's a mystery revealed. It's not like Clue. You've got to run around and try to figure out, well, I, wonder who, I wonder who did that mystery. No, Jesus is the one who came, who died, who was buried, who rose again. Well, what is the content of that mystery? What's the content of our common confession? Well, here it is. Christ appeared in a body. This is foundational to our faith. He was the God-man. Every cult, every other religious system denies the full godhood and manhood of Jesus Christ. And that's where they go wrong. Christ appeared in a body so that he could, t- he took on flesh so that he could die for us, live a perfect life, be our perfect high priest, and yet take the fullness of the wrath of God, paying an infinite payment that we could not pay. He appeared in a body. This is real, and we proclaim it. Everything starts there. Two natures making up one person, dwelling in one body without confusion, change, division, or separation, the true God-man. And he was vindicated by the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian work. God the Father sends the Son. And God the Spirit gives testimony of the Son's full favor from the Father and the fullness of the work that he accomplished. In Christ's baptism, the Spirit comes. God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. The Spirit descends like a dove as he comes upon Christ to empower him for ministry. And then the Son of God goes and does his work. The Spirit vindicates, makes evident God's pleasure and provides God's power for the accomplishing of the work. And then it's the Spirit of God who makes a final demonstration of, the, of God's acceptance of the work of the Son by raising him from the dead, Romans 1.4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He appeared in a body, was vindicated in the spirit. So testimony was given by the Godhead, but testimony is also given by the most powerful created beings in the universe, right? Now, compared to God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, the angelic beings, as seen by angels, are infinitely less in comparison with them. But in comparison with you, they are levels of magnitude more powerful than you, right? Than the greatest political leader, than the greatest Nebuchadnezzar or Hitler or any other leader in this world. Angelic beings are levels of magnitude above them, and yet, When it says he was seen by angels, those amazing, powerful, angelic beings worshipped Christ, proclaimed Christ, prepared the way for Christ. And then the fallen angels, the fallen angelic beings, Christ proclaimed his victory over them. They saw him too as he burst from the tomb. And it says, Colossians 2.15, When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And then he goes during the time of his death to make proclamation to the the angels, the fallen angels in prison. He goes and he says, I win, you lose. I am, I have conquered death. I have conquered you. He was seen by angels. The most powerful created beings worshiped him, bent the knee to him. He was preached among the nations. This is what we do. Gospel hope, this is what you do you preach Jesus among the nations. The gospel must go forward. This is what Jesus himself said. It's what Justin prayed. right? It's Matthew 28, that you would go forth and make disciples. The gospel must be known because it's the greatest message. The gospel must be known because it's the greatest person, the God-man who must be exalted. God must receive all of the glory that he deserves and that's why we proclaim the message It's part of the foundational commission of the church. We proclaim. And then it says, I love this. He was believed on in the world. This is most likely a hymn, by the way, that was circulating in the churches. Paul might have written it. Maybe he was a great hymn writer. Seems to have written probably other hymns in his writings. The fact that it's a hymn doesn't mean it's less than scripture. Right? Just pages of ink spilled on this. Where'd it come from? It's in the Bible. All right? It was probably sung in the churches. Good music making proclamation of the person and work of Christ. Because he was believed on in the world. See, Gospel Hope, why do we send you? Because we are absolutely assured of the fact that when you preach the gospel, people will believe. Why? Because you're powerful? Because you have good witnessing techniques? No, because God saves. And he saves through the proclamation of the gospel. He has made the gospel in such a way, he's made the way of salvation in such a way that when it's proclaimed, he himself does the work to regenerate those whom he has called and to bring them to repentance and faith, he will have a witness. People believe. But they do not believe because you are so earnest and you are so intent. As earnest and as intent as you are, they believe because God has the power. I mean, imagine it said, preached among the nations and nobody believed. No, preached among the nations, believed on in the world. That's the gospel power. It will happen. And then the crowning jewel of all of this, he was taken up in glory, exalted back to be with the Father with the glory that he had with God before the world was God attesting to his full pleasure in his son. The fullness of the work of the son to accomplish the will of the father is attested to by the son being raised back, ascended back up to be with the father. And we proclaim the risen and returning Lord. Before whom every knee will bow. For this reason also, God highly exalted in Philippians 2.10 and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For our time together, thank you for this joyful day where you, by your work and your power through your gospel, have birthed a new church. We're just so grateful for that, and I pray that you would help us to delight and rejoice in that as we really really see that work through. Are are your under shepherds to help see that work through this morning? In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.